So today we are going to return once again to the gospel according to Matthew. It's a little bit like entering the home stretch on a very long relay race. We've been at this for more than a minute. And um, as you already saw, we're going to be in Matthew 19 in a moment. But before we get there, real quick pop quiz for you. Without looking at your phone, what were you doing on Thursday, August 12th, 2021 at 9 a.m.? I know it feels like law and order. You're like, I don't, I don't know what I was doing. Um, by the way, this morning, I, I just want to repeat, Thursday, 9 a.m., James Nguyen said sleeping. I was like, bro, get to work. Um, so I know that was a long time ago. A lot has happened in your life since then, and it's easy to imagine at the end of August or mid-August, you were approaching the end of the summer, one of maybe your last lazy mornings. Well, as I look back on that date on my calendar... I have an appointment there that morning that is labeled Matthew Lookover with Mike, which means that it was on that day, 528 days ago, that we finalized the teaching schedule that would have us in this text today. Now, I mention that because today's passage deals with marriage. Jason, you and I should check heart rates on our watch right about now because uh, that'd be an interesting comparison. This is a topic that many in our church family feel weary of for a wide variety of reasons. And I know this because you've told me so. And I know that as we come to the topic of marriage yet again today, it will be easy for some here to just want to throw up your hands in exasperation and say, seriously, again, like how tone deaf are these guys? Why do we keep doing this? I promise you my heart has walked through a gamut of emotions this week as I've worked to prepare. Many of them the same emotions that you have shared with me this week and in the past weeks and months. And yet I am convinced that challenging as the timing may feel, this text is God's good gift to us as we consider the wisdom of our Savior on a really important topic. And so are you in Matthew 19? If so, and if you are able, I want to invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. 
A brief prayer for us as we dive in here this morning. Lord God, Jesus declared that you are a good father who gives good gifts to your children. And we believe that the scriptures are one of your best gifts to us. So help us to receive your word as good news this morning. Awaken our hearts to see anew the beauty and freedom of walking in your way. I pray that anything said in the coming minutes that reflects your heart would be amplified in our ears and minds and hearts. And likewise, I pray that anything that falls short of that would be blown away so that all that remains is the pure gift of your word. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in verse 1 of this passage that we just read, the setting for the chapter, it shifts from Galilee in the north of Israel to Judea in the south. Now, that might not resonate with us, but Matthew's original readers would have known that being in Judea meant being closer to Jerusalem, which was both the capital city and the religious center of the nation. And Jerusalem was home to the temple and the functional home base for the various groups of leaders that we've already seen Jesus in conflict with throughout Matthew's gospel. And so the phrase, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, would have hit Matthew's original readers a little bit like when you're watching a horror movie and somebody reaches for the basement door. You're like, no, no, don't, don't go there. And yet, that's exactly where Jesus heads. And once he arrives, we see that he finds himself once again in a scrap with the Pharisees. Verse 3, would you look at it? They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, this may seem like an obvious and easy answer, a quick no to the question, but divorce was a hotly contested issue among Torah-observant Jews. And continued to be so in Jesus' day. So this is stemming largely from one small phrase in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Deuteronomy 24, 1 says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and then Moses goes on to lay out how one ought to respond to such a situation. Well, the debate that was raging in Jesus' day, it centered on this small phrase, something indecent. And there were really two different approaches to interpreting this phrase. They were represented by two different schools of rabbis and their teaching. One tradition, that of the rabbi Shammai, held to a particular interpretation, and a different rabbi, Hillel, he held to a very different interpretation still. And they often didn't agree with one another, Shammai and Hillel. But the Mishnah records both of them, and I want you to see them because I think this is helpful for us to understand exactly what's being put in front of Jesus. The Mishnah says this, The school of Shammai say, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written, Because he hath found in her indecency. In anything. It's emphasizing that word. And the school of Hillel say he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written because he has found in, in her indecency in anything, with the emphasis on anything. That final interpretation, the Hillel interpretation, came to be known as the any cause divorce. And it appears that by the time of Jesus, this was actually the most common form of divorce that was taking place in Israel. So the Pharisees come with a very specifically worded question. And when they do that, they're thrusting Jesus into the middle of this very debate. And they're demanding that he pick a side. And I'm sure you noticed the 
opening phrase, the Pharisees came to test him. Notice, they don't come to actually seek his wisdom in order to orient their lives around what Jesus has to say. No, they're trying to pin him down as either one of us or one of them so that they know what to do with Jesus. And so when they come, ready to put him in a tight spot with their either-or question, Jesus turns the tables on them and he questions them. Notice his examination opens with these words that would have struck these self-confident religious leaders. Haven't you read? This had to have cut deep. Now see, the Pharisees, they prided themselves on their knowledge of the scriptures. They were well known in Israelite society for their Bible fluency. And so when Jesus says, haven't you read? It would be a little like asking Taylor Swift, have you ever made music? Or asking Ken Huang, do you even know what a pocket square is? That's right. He does, is the answer to that question. So Jesus' opening words are, haven't you read? And he's immediately putting the Pharisees on guard, but he's doing this for a couple of reasons. Only one of them is to throw shade at them. The second, and the most important, is that with these three words, actually just two words in Greek, Jesus offers a powerful endorsement of the Scriptures. The Scriptures as God's authoritative Word And I believe that Jesus' piercing question for the Pharisees is his piercing question for each of us, too. Haven't you read? The path of discipleship calls for wisdom, and often that wisdom can be gained through tradition and human insight. But the foundation and fuel for our discipleship to Jesus will always be the Scriptures first. And any human wisdom worth heeding must align with the very will of God revealed in the will of God. Because we are easily led astray. We might not realize that in the moment, but the prophet Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? As we read in the book of Proverbs, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. But by contrast, the apostle Paul reminds his pastoral protege, Timothy, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is why week by week when we come together, we gather around this book as the foundation of our life together. The opening verses of Matthew 19 offer a sobering challenge about the posture that we bring to God and to the scriptures and to Jesus. And the Pharisees remind us that it is possible, it is possible to be impressive in our Bible literacy and remain stunted in our discipleship. The goal of this book is not to win Bible trivia night. It is to live under the Lordship and be conformed into the image of Jesus, the one the whole thing is about and points to. God has spoken authoritatively through the Scriptures, and they are an unending fountain of joy and life for those who seek him there. But finding that joy in life, being conformed into the image of the Christ to whom the scriptures bear witness, it is nearly impossible for those who come to the Bible and to Christ with the posture evidenced here by the Pharisees. Instead, we see in story after story in the scriptures and story after story in this room 
that the road to being conformed into the image of Christ is marked by awe at his majesty and submission to his lordship. So significantly in Matthew 19, Jesus holds the Hebrew scriptures up as highly as he could. But he doesn't just hold up the scriptures in general. He holds up specific scriptures. And the scriptures he cites matter for the topic at hand. See, as both the author and the fulfillment of scripture, Jesus could have included or omitted anything he wanted. But we need to pay attention to which scriptures he chose to include and what he chose to say. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus's use of the Hebrew scriptures here highlights three things. First, notice that Jesus roots his response in the ideal of creation, not the concessions of the law. In verse 4, he says, at the beginning. And in verse 8, he says, it was not this way from the beginning. So when the religious leaders come to Jesus and they want to grapple about the law, Jesus takes, takes his examiners well before the law. As if to say, if you want to argue about the specifics of a divorce that will be approved by God, you've already lost the plot. The law gives guidance for faithfulness in a less than ideal world, but we first have to revel in the ideal of what God created. Secondly, in quoting Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh, Jesus highlights permanence. Jesus hearkens back to the account of creation given to us in the book of Genesis, and he insists that as a function of their image-bearing, humans in marriage act just like their creator in bringing about something brand new. This would have been very significant in the context of Genesis. Because in the opening of Genesis, throughout the first two chapters, we see that God alone is held up as the creator, the origin, the author of all things. But in marriage, the man and the woman in the garden together, they create something never before seen, something brand new, one flesh. It's a new and mysterious unity that didn't exist prior. And it's in this vein that Jesus finishes verse 6 with these words, Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus insists that when one flesh is the reality, division now becomes unthinkable. And the challenge for all involved in a marriage to, is to actually live out the reality of the one flesh union. As people who no longer live as separates, but as the new mysterious unity of one flesh. And we also have to reckon with the other passage that Jesus quotes in his response to the Pharisees, because it's perhaps one of the most pertinent to discussions about marriage taking place in our day. Think with me about this. The Pharisees came to Jesus with a question that on the surface had to do with the permanence of marriage, the validity of divorce. So strictly speaking, it would have been sufficient for Jesus to quote Genesis 2 about the one flesh union, to make his point about permanence in marriage. And yet, that's not where Jesus begins this discussion of marriage. It might have even seemed adjacent to the question at hand at the time, but Jesus begins this discussion with Genesis 1, saying at the beginning, the Creator made them male 
and female. And by virtue of quoting Genesis 127, Jesus highlights gender difference as something innate to marriage, not incidental. Jesus insists that God institutes marriage to bring about the one flesh union only possible through the coming together of two who are unlike similars. In order to bring about the one flesh, new creation only possible from this very specific raw material. Jesus didn't have to include Genesis 1 to answer the question he'd been asked, but he did. And we need to pay attention to that. Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question about divorce is to hearken back to God's original design of the permanent new creation of one flesh by virtue of one man and one woman coming together in marriage. And yet we all know, quite painfully, that the ideals of Eden don't always play out in the real world. And so the Pharisees pressed the issue further. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So though continuing to question Jesus might not have been the wise course of action here, the question is a really valid one. It's a fairly logical follow-up to what Jesus has just said. In essence, they're saying, if God designed marriage in a particular way, then why does the law given by God through Moses seem to say something other than that? Well, in verse 8, we see that Jesus is more than willing to enter into the realities of life in a less-than-ideal world. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hardened. But it was not this way from the beginning. I think we all can see and recognize that Moses permitted is very different than the Creator made, back in verse 4. Friends, the law was given in the context of a fallen world, and one of its reasons for being given was because it is, in fact, a fallen world. Paul says as much in Galatians 3. He says, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And so what we often see in the Mosaic law is God's heart to limit the damage that image bearers would do to one another if left to their own wisdom. And Deuteronomy 24's provision is a prime example because though divorce is not what God instituted in the beginning, divorce was already a reality in the ancient Near East, even in Israel, among the people of God. And God was intent to protect the most vulnerable of his image bearers from the worst ravages of divorce. In the patriarchal societies of the ancient Near East, women had very few rights of their own. But in the case of a divorce, the Mosaic law graciously provides for the already disadvantaged in this relationship. In his commentary on Deuteronomy, Daniel Block helps explain the significance of what's going on here. He says, The certificate was vital for the woman, especially if the document relinquished the husband's rights to her and her dowry and authorized her to return to her family of origin or to marry another man. Without this document, he could demand her back at any time. And if she would remarry, he could accuse her of adultery. I think this helps explain Jesus' phrase, because your heart's were hard. Jesus is saying, in effect, your sinful inclination to damage other image bearers in pursuit of your own gratification, it led to God giving the law to rein you in. And yet, in keeping with what Jeremiah has already told us about the condition of the human heart, the people of God had turned a law that was intended to limit the damage into an opportunity to see how wide the loophole could be. 
And so in verse 9, Jesus finally gives the kind of direct answer the Pharisees probably hoped for way back in verse 3. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so with this pronouncement, it sounds very much like Jesus is coming down on the Shammai side of this debate. But furthermore, it sounds like he's being very exclusive and restricting the practice of divorce only to instances of sexual immorality, such as marital infidelity. But I want to ask if that's really what he's saying. Because we have to remember, the context of the question is how to interpret specifically Deuteronomy 24. The precisely worded question of the Pharisees brought Jesus into a very specific conversation about a very specific debate about how to understand the troubling phrase, something indecent, that we already looked at. And on the topic of that debate, about how to interpret Deuteronomy 24, Jesus rejects the any-cause approach to divorce. And yet, we have to recognize that in passages such as Exodus 21 and elsewhere, the Old Testament offers other grounds for divorce, neglect and abuse being among them. So David Instone Brewer is somebody who's done a ton of research on this topic, and he wrote a couple of books, one called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church. And I have a lengthy but I think helpful and insightful quote. He says this, If Jesus believed that neglect and abuse were valid grounds for divorce, why didn't he say something about them? The most likely answer is that he did not need to say anything, or that he did say something, but the gospel writers did not think it was necessary to record it because the principle was so universally accepted that there was no dispute about it. There were no debates about the validity of neglect and abuse as grounds for divorce in any ancient Jewish literature. Rather than indicating that Jesus did not accept the validity of divorce for neglect and abuse, his silence about it highlights the fact that he did accept it, like all other Jews at that time. Now, I know the implications of this are big enough for a whole separate sermon, but for now, it's enough to dispense with the illusion that the scriptures and Jesus only imagine one valid cause for divorce. But even with that being the case, we need to return to the debate at hand and ask, why is it that sexual immorality is an exception in Deuteronomy 24? Well, given what we've seen in Genesis about the unique creational power of marriage— and the sexual union that only belongs properly within its benevolent boundaries, sexual immorality takes what has been made one and tears it in two. Sexual immorality is such a total violation of the one flesh nature of marriage that it is as if such an action declares the marriage vows obsolete. We have to see and reckon with the fact that in the scriptures, Sexual sin is treated differently. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And because we follow Jesus as embodied creatures, what happens in our bodies matters. And sexual fidelity to the way of the kingdom of God is a key way in which discipleship to Jesus has always looked different than the surrounding world. And so here, Jesus lays out a really high standard. Such a high standard that his disciples start to reject the premise. Would you look at verse 10? The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. So that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? 
Anyone else find this verse a little tricky in their home group, or was it just me? Well, fortunately, I've sat with this verse all week. I've done some scholarly digging, and I finally feel like this morning I have a little clarity to be able to say, yes, that's a weird thing to say. (laughs) But here's what we have to see. I'm not totally sure why they said that. Nobody can totally agree. But their stunned response serves to highlight one thing very clearly. The countercultural nature of Jesus' teaching, even for his time. Jesus had no interest in pandering to either the religious leaders of the day or his closest followers. Instead, he came to teach and to embody the will of God for human flourishing, and that will challenge each of us at some point. And what the disciples treat as implausible, Jesus recasts. Not only as possible, but as a beautiful and viable option for stewarding one's sexuality in a way that pleases God. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In a society in which marriage was not only assumed, but given religious ramifications, with these stunning words, Jesus sanctifies singleness. Jesus, our celibate, single Savior, holds out celibacy as the profoundly faithful calling of the unmarried disciple. Sam Albury comments on how this relates to the gospel. He says, marriage is not ultimate, but it points to the thing that is. Marriage itself is not meant to fulfill us, but to point to the thing that does. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, celibate singleness shows us its sufficiency. It's a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ we possess what is. Jesus holds in the highest possible regard here those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And while marriage is a God-given institution for humans to fulfill their role as image bearers, marriage is not the only way to be human and is not the only way to live a life that pleases God. Churches, ours included, have sometimes elevated marriage to a place of idolatry and communicated that anything less than marriage and children is beneath the will of God. And in doing so, we ignore the lived experience of Jesus and we contradict his own teaching. And while we do that, we reveal hearts that are more like those that questioned Jesus in Judea. If we are going to call unmarried disciples to a life of celibacy, we also must open wide the doors of true family within the church. We must share their burdens and share their lives. We must know their trials and know their stories. We must celebrate their costly discipleship in an age that claims that sexual expression is all important. In short, if we are going to call unmarried disciples to faithfulness in celibacy, we must be the family that God has always called us to be. Now I know we've been in some deep waters this morning, and I don't know. What of all that we've looked at has struck your heart or maybe struck a nerve? Maybe you've heard something that challenged you or comforted you. But as we prepare in a moment to come to the Lord's table, I wanted to give us two critical reminders. And the first is this, that God's laws are for our flourishing. Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
walking in the way of Jesus, even when the way seems difficult, challenging, and costly, is always the path to life. And walking contrary to God's commands will always lead to the kind of thing that Jesus describes as death and destruction. And since there's not a person in this room who doesn't know the pain of failing God's standards and experiencing the pain of sin, I want to offer us a second critical reminder this morning, and it is that God's grace is for our failures. The psalmist says in Psalm 130, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. This transformative grace, it frees us not only to serve God, but to reject even the shame that the enemy of our souls longs to see cripple us. Hear what Paul says to the Christians in Rome. He says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Friends, no matter your story, no matter your sin, no matter your struggles or your shame, it is all nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ so that you might be freed to know true righteousness. That righteousness is available to us because our Savior died to create a new family. One based not on sexual reproduction, but on spiritual rebirth. One marked not by the badge of marriage, but by the badge of adoption. And week by week, we tell that story when we come to this table. And we take bread and we remember that Jesus allowed his body to be pierced in order to reconcile us to God. And we dip it in wine, and we remember that he allowed his blood to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I know that this is an intimate topic that hits very close to home for many of us. We're going to have prayer teams on either side. They would love to pray with you about anything that's stirring up in your spirit. But I want you to hear an invitation to the grace of God. Come to the table. Come to the table where grace and mercy and justice meet. Come in celebration of the redemptive work of our celibate, single Savior who died to make us family. Let's continue in our worship.